0: Tuning into this program for a f- the first time. Boy, are you in for a treat because it is our bi-weekly or depending on who you ask, our bi-monthly excursion into looking up and knowing what's what. That's right, it's Dr. Sky Night for the next hour. You are going to be treated as I will be. To the insights of Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky, a veteran radio and television broadcaster and an edutainer with expertise in astronomy and space, He's also a podcaster with the Red Apple Podcast Network. You could search the Dr. Sky Experience at redapplepodcastnetwork.com. If you like what you hear for the next hour, you're going to love the Dr. Sky Experience. Uh, Steve, it's always great to talk with you. Thanks for joining me again.
1: Well, good morning, Frank. Good to be here on another one of these adventures. And if I may take the liberty of calling the radio show here, what? The Infinite side of midnight. I love it.
0: I love there it. Uh, <laughs> I'll tell you, Infinite describes my confusion and frustration <laughs> with uh, – the U.S. government's explanation of these UFOs that we've shot down. So uh, we spoke at length two weeks ago about the uh, Chinese spy balloon, and uh, thankfully that's been recovered. Hopefully we get some good intelligence uh, over that. Since then, uh, there have been... Three more objects shot down. Now, we don't know what they are, and the government either doesn't know what they are or or they're not telling us. We've been told they're not extraterrestrial. We've been (laughs) told they're not Chinese, and we've been told they're not a threat. And just two days ago, we were told that the government is suspending any efforts to recover These items, which just is mind-boggling to me, the fact that we're willing to spend $437,000 per missile to shoot them down, but can't spend a little bit of time to actually find them and see what they were. Give me your take on where we are with these Chinese balloons and these related balloon threats, if these even are balloons.
1: Well, it's a very interesting story. As Secretary Austin, Secretary of Defense said, the three balloon objects or the three objects – UAPs, Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon, were definitely not of the Chinese character. Let's go back in time. We find out through reports from the Washington Post, if we can believe everything that we read, we have some skepticism on reports no matter where they are, especially off the Internet. But it's been identified through this Washington Post report that they have identified, that is, the military, two locations, one on the big island of Hainan off of China, in which there's an active program of what they call aerostat balloons. These are balloons that are tethered. They use them along the United States border for many years for drug interdiction and tracking aircraft that come through. But they believe that this is the source, probably, of not just this Chinese balloon, the big inflatable, but also, get a load of this, Frank, another location in Mongolia in which they believe, that is the military, that this is a serious effort by the Chinese military to do this, and the reason for the Hainan location according to those in the meteorological world, say that these locations are conducive to pushing these balloons up like a jet stream, higher up like we did over Alaska. But the strangest part of it is we still have no idea why they didn't shoot this down. I don't know if I reported this last time, but I know on John Katsimatidis' program, Cats at Night, we were talking a little bit more. Late breaking news then was that our military, one of the reasons why, not defending the Biden administration, but being open-minded nonetheless, is that some of our secret assets or so called secret military aircraft assets, these are called U two R Dragon Lady aircraft. They go back to the history of when, you know, Gary Powers was shot down, the big event with Khrushchev in I believe what, nineteen sixty. But this modern version of the U two R has so many surveillance you know, capabilities on it. It can sense things, track things, eavesdrop on things. So one of the theories was that we were way above the balloon, this U-2R, you wear like a space suit to fly it, that we might have been gathering so much, hopefully gathering so much information on that. And then we hear about the shoot down, but I still can't figure it out. Why would they let this thing just drift over America? And the deepest of conspiracy theories, and I read this, I don't believe it, oh, who knows, is that these balloons in mass could have the ability to drop these type of fungal spores from the atmosphere trying to destroy american crop production i mean that's how bizarre some of this goes but frank it's still the most amazing story laughable to the point where these three objects that are chased by f-16s uh where they're (laughs) as you reported these sidewinder missiles are not cheap and the story goes that this was probably the one over Alaska, Canada, and then the one that went down over Lake Huron, a missing balloon from a bunch of hobbyists, and they claim that the hobbyist actually had a call signal for their balloon known as K9YO15, a $12 balloon shot down by a sophisticated aircraft. But here's the problem, and I'll stop on this, but it's so exciting. Don't you think? There are stories that are out there Tyler Rogelway, who writes, of course, you know, for for, for this military website that's out there, he's very, very credible. There's even reports that our F-22s, when spotted possibly this object, the one of the three, or the same one that was three, it interfered with our sophisticated electronics on these $200 million aircraft. Go figure. So what are we being told? Hardly anything. And what's the government doing, Frank? It's going to start up a whole new commission an unidentified aerial phenomenon. Here we go again.
0: So this this one item, which yes. a balloon hobbyist group is claiming could be theirs, yes. um, and it seems they have some credibility uh, that right. uh, you know it's gone missing, and it does sort of fit the circumstances. That was able to screw up the uh, the sensors or the the surveillance technology or the whatever the 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 operational ability of a two hundred million dollar aircraft. How can that be?
1: That's why I'm saying I doubt that very much. But I'm saying this is what you read out there. And let's say this. If indeed it was a hobbyist balloon, I'd like to talk to those hobbyists and talk to them and say, hey, we could use you working for the Pentagon to help us to deflect any other advance, let's say a foreign country that doesn't like us, to you know suppress their electronic system. So that's why even the story gets more bizarre. And as you said correctly, there's no more search. There's not an ongoing search for the debris. I don't know how deep Lake Huron is. I don't want to be there right now, and I don't think the water's too warm. But imagine that. We're not getting any answers. What about the answers about what was the payload on this particular Chinese balloon. And remember this, there's still some questions as to whether they shot an AIM-9, and I'm gonna use the simple term, explosive-charged type of missile, or whether they actually shot a kinetic Sidewinder, meaning one that just punctures, Right. because why would you wanna destroy this platform? Sure. And it was so ridiculous, I mean, I have friends in South Carolina, like many people, and they were actually telling me, hey, Steve, I was watching the balloon up above my home, you know, forty, fifty thousand 50000 feet. You could see it, gigantic. The thing is like the size of like 200 feet when inflated. But when they shoot it down or def, you know, deflate it, I'm just looking at this thing. This is so ridiculous. The payload itself is what you want, the heck with the balloon. I want to see what the electronics are on there, and we've heard nada. At least I've been searching this. I don't know if you've come up with anything. What's the story on the 40 some 40-foot deep waters? You should imagine that they should be able to at least dig up something from forty feet of water, not four thousand feet of water. We've heard nothing, and that makes the whole story even more
0: complicated. Well, they have indicated that they've recovered the the balloon and and what's right. inside it, but they haven't really told us much about about the about the payload. <laughs> Explain to folks if if you're able. Sure. Why in an era where countries are spying on one another using satellite technology and human intelligence and things of that nature, why when they have these sophisticated satellites, which both the United States and China evidently do, why would they need to use a balloon to to spy or do whatever to monitor uh, other countries? Wouldn't the satellites offer everything that the balloon could offer and more?
1: Yes and no. And the the yes part, if it is, you get the good resolution from a spacecraft. And again, they're talking about our spacecraft, let's say spy satellites or surveillance satellites. The NSA has the best answer. They won't tell us. But from altitude, let's say 200 or 300 miles up, allegedly the cameras are so sophisticated, and also with their ground-penetrating radar, that they can actually resolve the headlines if you light a newspaper on the ground. But the answer that goes to the positive side of a balloon is that it loiters over an area for a longer time and it also has the capability of eavesdropping on communications where a satellite in in orbit would probably have a relative difficulty in trying to pick up as much of those you know signals that are coming from the ground and again this has been used for so long as i mentioned in our last episode a couple of weeks ago the namesake of the actually the the two f22s that went up to shoot down the chinese balloon their call signs were frank 1 and frank 2 in honor of the Air Force Base that's just right behind my left shoulder right now, just by a few miles, Luke Air Force Base, Frank Luke Jr., who was the great Arizona balloon buster who shot down, what, anywhere from 14 to 19 of these German balloons in World War I. But it's so amazing. But the simple answer, I would think, is this. You have the ability to loiter for a long time if it's not shot down. And that begs the question, why wasn't this thing interdicted way over the ocean And if it's not our airspace, well, we don't shoot it down unless it's over our airspace and considered a potential threat. This thing just had its merry way. And also, people need to know that this balloon, the winds were not just favorable to the Chinese Communist Party. Allegedly, this balloon has the capability of doing some maneuvering. Mm. And where did it go? It went over Maelstrom Air Force Base, one of the most impressive Air Force bases. And Frank, not to go off into the UFO topic— but a long, long time ago, I've interviewed a gentleman named Captain Robert Silas, who was in charge out there of the, well, so much, and his MPs, they reported seeing a blue light come out of the sky. And if people look up this incident, I believe in 1967, it allegedly came over each one of the military you know, ICBM silos, shut down the nuclear missiles, and darted off into the sky. So it's obviously a very secret location. And the understanding that it continued, that is, the Chinese surveillance balloon, over Kansas, where another in-ground ICBM you know, cluster is, and also over Whiteman Air Force Base, the home of so many of the amazing B-2, quote, stealth bombers. This is not by chance.
0: Well, um, th- that is wild, and it makes sense the way you explain sure. it. The the uh, last question I have about this whole thing, and then we'll give sure. people an opportunity to call in if they have questions, 800-848-9222. We're talking with Steve Cates. If you want to uh, if you want to weigh in with anything we're talking about. Uh, So we were told after the Chinese balloon, the initial Chinese spy balloon, that we tweaked our sensors and tweaked our monitoring to uh, make them more sensitive and pick up these slow moving smaller objects. And then uh, these objects, which were considered so inconsequential pre-balloon, that we didn't even have to know they were there. Not only uh, are we able to spot them, but we're able to make the decision to shoot them down. Uh, my, uh, to me, it's a wildly inconsistent and just, uh, you know, absolutely inexplic- inexplicable policy when it comes to these objects. I agree. Going forward, Mm -hmm. do we have any idea what our policy is going to be in terms of how to handle these sorts of objects? Well, I think we
1: got spanked on this one, obviously, because if you look at some of the things that the Chinese government has written, I'm talking about the Communist Party, their whole plan of trying to surveil... There's a weakness here. Obviously, I'm not the only person saying this. I just agree with what I'm about to say here because, well, I'm agreeing with what I'm about to tell you. Apparently, they've found out that the middle ground is our weakness. In other words, we have the high ground in space where they have less sophisticated satellites than we do. That's the story. Ours are supposed to be the best in the world, developed by so many you know, serious science and engin- scientists and engineers. But the middle ground is this altitude area, let's say, where aircraft – above where aircraft fly. Let's say jet liners no higher than, say, 45, maybe 50,000 feet for private jets if you happen to have one. But the point is they've noticed, the Chinese, that this is a weak spot. And let's say this. What if this just went unabated and you continue to send balloons like this? One of the gentlemen that we both know, and I say this posthumously, we're so sad to lose him, was Dr. Peter Vincent Pry. And I know you've had some very interesting interviews with him, as I have, talking about the threat of EMP. So what's to stop that balloon if we kind of just shrugged their shoulders, you know, just ignored this and said, "Ah, oh, you know, it's just another balloon. Uh, it's nothing. It's not really doing anything. The ability for anybody like that, meaning a rogue nation, to fly or sail something high up in the atmosphere with a small, low-yield nuclear device, they've found the weakness. And I don't know. I imagine, as you said, tweaking our sensors – we need to have a much better ground-to-middle ground, to middle ground or, or middle space uh, you know, area to track uh, objects. I think we're weak in that. And I hate to knock our own country on this, but I think it's pretty obvious.
0: Uh, 800-848-9222. Larry is in Westchester. Larry, you're on with Steve Cates. Hello.
1: Good morning, Hi, Steve. Larry. has uh, anybody
0: asked the government if the pilots took photographs or videos of the three unidentified objects before they shot them down. As yes. far as I can
1: tell, there's no information on photographs of these items. Absolutely, Larry. You bring up a very good point. We're probably never going to know, and that's the problem. Why We're never going to know this. But allegedly on these F-16s, they carry these very sophisticated electronic pods that have the ability to track and sense in the infrared, in the visual spectrum, and they also have the ability to do a lot of other things, maybe to jam. These are pods. You see them on the sides of the under, un, underbelly. Uh, they're called stores on these aircraft. No, I haven't heard anything, Larry. And
0: Nobody's it's asked. And right. Any of these I haven't heard one either.
1: Not one news person has asked the president, the president's mm-hmm. press secretary, or the sure. spokesman from the Department of Defense,
0: where are the photographs? Nobody has asked about these things.
1: Larry, I'll tell you what I think in conclusion. Excellent question, really right on, Frank, but i got to add this. If anybody, the 9th Strategic Reconnaissance Wing, which has been home when the U-2s, I mean, when the SR-71s would fly, we knew all these people that ran it. But I think the best answer, Larry and Frank and everybody listening, is that we need to find out what those U-2 are, we'll, we'll never know, what the U-2 are, uh, Dragon Lady, with those sophisticated sensors. They flew above. They're yeah. capable of flying above the balloon, and if they were interdicting and, you know, carrying on and listening in on the transmissions, remember that payload, it's what, what was it trying to do? It just doesn't have a tape recorder. So they think they're going to get back the surveillance platform and then unload it and say, oh, wow, look what we found. It was probably, I don't know this, but probably transmitting up to satellites in space. But those U-2Rs, gentlemen, and everybody listening, that's where the information is. I mean, they had a field day, I'm sure, with these balloons. The, the U-2Rs can fly above it. They probably got whole 360-dimensional views of this, listened in, jamming ability, all kinds of synthetic aperture radar. But uh, you're right, Larry. I haven't heard anybody ask that question to anybody in authority.
0: Uh, Steve, in terms of the the missions to Mars and Mars exploration in general – Right now, it seems our best bet to know what's going on on the surface of Mars is the Perseverance Mars oh, yeah. rover. It's now been there two years. What do we know about what's going on on the surface of Mars? What have we learned from the Perseverance?
1: Sure. Well, happy birthday, Perseverance. And remember, this marks the second year. And if you look in terms of days on Mars, Martian days are called sols, S-O-L-S, so 710 some odd SALS. Because Martian, a Martian day is 39 minutes longer than an Earth day. So what was the mission of this particular craft? And rover, as we talk about now, it's to seek signs of ancient life, collect samples of rocks they call regolith. These are broken rocks and soil samples to hopefully be returned you know, to the Earth someday by another mission. They have these little test tubes that they've been dropping. But obviously it was launched back on July 30th, 2020. It landed in this amazing area which more than likely, Frank, was a dried lake bed called Jazeera Crater. And on board, we all know, this incredible little Mars little helicopter called Ingenuity. I didn't know this, but it's flown some 43 flights as of February the 16th, and it was only designed to run for 30 days as a demonstrator, but it sure impressed the entire world. So it flew back on April 19th of 2021. And how about this for a first flight? You know, The Wright brothers, I'm sure, out there in the cosmos would be very proud of this. It flew 19.8 feet vertically. No, excuse me, it flew 16 feet vertically and 9.8 feet horizontally. But uh, how about this, even more bizarre. Let's now go to Mars, since we're talking about the infinite side of midnight here. The local weather forecast from Perseverance just a few days ago, here we go, the high temperature of the day was 1 degree Fahrenheit, And the low at night, bundle up, folks, minus 116 below zero Fahrenheit. And the sun rose, whatever they call their time zone, since nobody's really decided which one it is. It's 6.08 a.m., local Martian time. I'm going to take the liberty of calling it that time zone. And sunset was at 6.37 p.m., local Martian time. But think about it, Frank. If you and I and the listeners were about to take that infinite journey beyond midnight, Get set for an eight- to nine-month journey. We'd probably be traveling 24,000 miles an hour, and we have to cover a distance. If you look at your odometer on your car, one of my little Toyota Scions, I love the little car, not to do a commercial, it just turned 88,000 miles for a 2015. That's the diameter of Jupiter. But in this case, I'd have to hope the Scion would last forever. You should have to cover 300 million miles just to get there.
0: Wow. Uh, Let me ask you what's happening with SpaceX. SpaceX is set to launch four new crew members to the International Space Station on Sunday. This marks the seventh crewed trip uh, to the space station for NASA, and it's clear that uh, SpaceX is um, only further investing in their efforts to uh, explore space in the private sector and their opportunities to partner with NASA in the public sector. What do we know about this uh, upcoming SpaceX mission? Well, it almost
1: seems like it's routine, don't you think, Frank? I mean, you look at the actual spacesuits that they have. They look like really designer clothing. The helmets don't look like the bulky ones of Apollo. But this is, as I say, routine. And, and obviously there's always you know dangers of going to space. So this particular Crew Dragon mission, the whole, the whole spacecraft is just so amazing. I mean, I've never been in one. That would be wonderful to take a tour or a virtual tour. I'm sure it's on the Internet. But it's so spacious. It's like a around. you know, all these computer monitors. There's a lot of room to move around in there. So they're going up to the International Space Station, but there's not a lot of happiness on part of the cosmonaut or cosmonauts that are on the International Space Station. Because one of their Soyuz spacecraft, they've detected a leak, and that, unfortunately, is going to prevent them from coming back to Earth as soon as they had wanted to. But in all due respect to the Russian Soyuz, we have to say accurately, it's been one of the most reliable space ferries. But what SpaceX has done, Frank, is just so amazing. And again, I don't work for them, but I certainly support them. I'm just so amazed every time I hear this. But if we shift gears over to the other projects that they're doing, this monster rocket which is the starship and the big booster this is going to be still one of the most amazing launches if we thought that the artemis rocket with its incredible power which now still has the record now and it's going to go quickly they say when uh, elon musk launches the starship by the way it's a stainless steel like 160 some feet in in length it's that real sci-fi looking like 50s spacecraft from those b b yeah, movies I love that we it. love it's awesome And they purposely chose stainless steel over all these composites because of its ability to handle the transfer of heat. Because when you look at what this thing is going to do, I just showed this to a large group in Sedona the other night. We did a whole thing on the latest of space and what's happening. And you find out that the rocket, the booster itself is massive. The power of the rocket, it's got like 33 of these big Raptor engines. And they did test them. I think they got 31 of the 32 to fire properly, but when it goes... The launch tower is larger than what we see for Artemis, and it has this amazing mechanical arm called Mechazilla, and it <laughs> holds the booster. And when that thing goes, it'll have such tremendous you know, power, like maybe 12 million pounds of thrust, totally off the charts. But then you see the Starship separate as it's going to do an orbital flight. And this may happen in just a couple of months, if not sooner. But, Frank, when you see Starship, it makes all these maneuvers and you see it turn around and you see the booster rocket actually come back to Earth, the massive booster. And if they do it right, which I'm sure they will, it will actually go back to the big launch tower. The Mechazilla arm will grab the big booster so it's reusable. But what's even more amazing is the starship, as it's now you know glowing because of the reentry of the atmosphere, like this orange glowing like it's tickled... You know, an iron, something from your fireplace and there, you see it glowing. This is amazing technology, but they've also said, honestly, that we could have an explosion or two, just like they had with starships. I think they're up to 15, and it was the last one that actually successfully landed. But, But, Frank, the people down there in Boca Chica are actually not too happy. They say they've terraformed that whole beach area into a very complicated area with a lot of noise. And also, yeah. we have to remember, the FAA still has to give permission, I don't know if they've gotten it, they may have gotten it already, to launch these giant rockets. So, in other words, you and I just can't go out and build a rocket with all our great expertise, right, and then just decide to launch it anytime we want just because we think we can. There's a lot of rules to follow, and the FAA, of course, gets involved.
0: Yeah, I can imagine uh a lot of the neighbors may not be happy about uh, living next door to. I mean, you see how rough it is uh, living next door to an airport. All those years you were in Queens, you, you can will. imagine. Uh, you can imagine living next door to a rocket airport. All right, uh, we're going to continue with Steve Cates in a moment. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. If you have questions, that's one eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. I have many. If you are interested in what we're talking about, you got to check out the Doctor Sky Experience. You can check it out at redapplepodcastnetwork.com or just search on any podcast app, uh, the Doctor Sky Experience. A ton of interesting stuff on there, a lot of great content. And we'll continue in just a moment. This is the other side of midnight straight ahead. The other side of midnight with Frank Morano. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Frank Morano. Frank 99 Red Balloons. You know, the inspiration for this song, believe it or not, was actually a newspaper article from the Las Vegas Review-Journal about five high school students in 1973 who played a prank to simulate a UFO by launching 99 balloons. And uh, now, if they were trying to pull that these days, we would shoot them all down without any pretense of going, bothering to look for them afterwards. Uh, we're spend, spending the hour with Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky, a veteran radio and TV broadcaster. And uh, you can hear his podcast, The Dr. Sky Experience. There is simply... Nothing like it. We're going to take your questions in a moment at uh, 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. Steve, uh, there has yes. been some asteroid news since last we spoke. You know, I am perpetually yes. uh, scared of an, an asteroid putting us into either dinosaur territory or science fiction film <laughs> territory. Uh, evidently, there's this new space radar that's going to hunt planet-threatening asteroids and uh, there was this other oddly shaped asteroid that was once considered an impact risk for Earth that raced past the planet. Where are we on the asteroid front these days, Steve?
1: Well, Frank, we have a better capability of doing these predictions, but if you don't mind me taking the liberty, I just wanted to mention something more about the Dr. Sky experience for all of the listeners out there. It's a combination of interviews, not only from my time tunnel as we go back in time, but also current ones, and just to give people an idea like I love and many people love the story of science fiction. So we have interviews up there coming very quickly, Billy Mume, June Lockhart. We have interviews with the great Walter Cronkite talking about space and things of that nature, but also about American exceptionalism. You know, I spent time in the military. I spent time in law enforcement. And just like John Catsabatiti says after his shows every day, truth, justice, and the American way. So it's a combination of all that. And how about that? It's also a weekly report of what you can see in the sky, but going back to the asteroid situation, Frank, this is so amazing. Here's two examples of two things that came very close to the Earth. Back earlier this month, we had asteroid 2023 BU. It passed the Earth. It was a 16-foot object. It passed the Earth by only 2,000 miles. So that's just about a little more, a little more than what the, or a little less, I should say, than the distance that you and I are now. I'm in Phoenix. You're in the New York area. And that was amazing that it even was detected so much ahead of time. But the most amazing one is this little tiny asteroid called 2023 CX. It was discovered seven hours before it was going to make some sort of a splash over the Earth. Remember, it's only three feet across, which is still big. But the astronomers actually gave a prediction to when and where this would be. Imagine this, if we told you tonight... At a certain time, look in the sky and look over here, and guess what? My prediction and yours would be accurate. We might be able to sell tickets in a big arena if we had this right. So the astronomers predicted that it would show up over Paris and over the English Channel at 3 a.m. their local time. Frank, it showed up at 2.59. Not a bad prediction. So we're getting better at these predictions because of two things the ability to source these objects out with these mega, megapixel telescopes uh, mm. and cameras, and the ability to calculate. The calculations is not as difficult. I don't know how to do them. The listeners probably don't. But the scientists that do this, the greatest tool in their arsenal is now to have the ability to have these gigantic cameras that can search the skies. And then they go into the mode of orbital planning and orbital mechanics, but don't you think, isn't that amazing that we can actually predict to, the, to a good amount of accuracy good amount of accuracy, when and where these things might come? We need that.
0: Oh, no, no doubt about it. I'm with you on that. 800-848-9222. We're going to get to uh, people's calls in a second, but you alluded to one of the things that you uh, focus on in the Dr. Sky experience, which is telling people what they can see in the sky. Anything in the sky these days that's worth checking out?
1: Well, Frank, we have like a Super Bowl event if you're in the world of astronomy. Here it is. Tonight, on the true Washington's birthday, if your skies are clear, wherever you're listening to this show, the other side of midnight, take a look right after sunset. Frank, the most amazing ongoing conjunction between Venus and Jupiter and the thin crescent moon will hang just to the left of the beautiful planet Venus. This is one of those amazing conjunctions. And I want to remind people that over the rest of this month, with there are not many days left, obviously, what, about a week or a little less than a week left, by the end of the month, the courtship and the month of love, with Valentine's Day now over, Venus continues to move closer to the giant planet Jupiter. She's the goddess of love. He's the god of gods in the mythological world. Frank, they're going to be the distant separation of a full moon. And these are two brilliant naked eye objects even in the most brightly lit cities, downtown Manhattan, let's say, if you have a clear view to the southwest or any place that you're listening to this show, don't miss it. I call it sacred geometry because of it. So it's like the biblical collection when we talk about the Star of Bethlehem. These are events that I think are so fascinating. It gives everybody a pause, don't you think, in these troubling times to take a deep breath and say, wow, that's
0: really amazing. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. 800-848-9222. A bunch of people lined up to talk with you. Let me begin with uh, Dave in Pennsylvania. Hello, Dave.
1: Hey, hey good, uh, morning. Uh, good morning, Dr. Sky. Quick question. Uh, you know, when you, you mentioned earlier, you know, you know, spacecraft flying to Mars, you're going 24,000 miles an hour. Mm-hmm. How does a spacecraft navigate around or, or if there's debris of asteroids or particles in space? 'Cause going at that speed, would that rip the spacecraft apart? I just oh, yeah. don't know how yes. how does that how do you do that? Because you can't see and steer around, they're going too fast. Dave, another great question, just like Larry's before, but here's the answer. They don't really have a way to do that. It's not like I'm in the Millennium Falcon and you and I are sitting there with Chewbacca and we have some sort of a radar. That's true. You know, even micro meteoroids have the ability to puncture the hull as it's done many times to the International Space Station. So you're absolutely right. There's no guarantee that we have some way of detecting, unless, you know, future generations, I'm sure, will. So we're really taking a risk out there because you are flying through space, even though space is considered to be somewhat of a vacuum. How right you are, Dave, that there's so many particles out in space, it doesn't take much. But I would hope they have some kind of sense of knowing if it's a big one, like a couple of hundred miles in diameter, which would be an asteroid. But you bring up a good point. I don't think there's any real easy answer to that one.
0: Thank you, Dave. 800-848-9222. Joe is in Queens. Hello, Joe.
1: Hi, Steve. I just want to bring up two things.
0: Yeah, Dylan. uh, First, uh, has NASA used, like, say, some of the desert terrain or below the sea terrain or
1: Antarctica, to, to test some of their uh, uh, simulate space to a degree, yes. that would be my first question. Sure. My other question is that I don't know if this relates as much to space, but what do you think of this facial recognition technology? There's a lot of controversy about it's being deployed on uh, citizens without their uh, consent. Well, I think we'll take the for the first part of that. The easy part of that is Joe, and again, good morning. Looking at these locations around the world, we started off here, right up in northern Arizona with the Apollo astronauts when they were actually training to walk on the surface of the moon, because up there just to the east of Flagstaff is a big lava field, and it simulated as much as we could of the lunar surface. But they've also done this in other places, in other desert regions where they have a small rover. And I don't know, Frank, I can't remember the year and show, but we were part of an event with media to go to the University of Arizona And as one of the landers, there's been so many, they had a full scale, as if you went inside the building, of the actual terrain that they imaged from space where this rover would be going. And as it supposedly landed, they then showed you how this thing was moving. But on the second part, Joe, I'm very concerned about this whole facial recognition thing. I mean, I like technology. But again, that's probably for another subject, right, Frank? Uh, Another time. Uh, Yeah it's become overwhelming to the point where hopefully people will wake up and recognize that uh, there has to be i think some simple limitations to this stuff let's not follow the chinese model that is the communist party in which now instead of just having a credit score you know don't don't blame people if their credit's bad for some things that are not their fault but in china they're doing what frank a social credit score and joe but it's all based on how you track and where you go and well that's a sad story, so I would hope somebody might pull the plug on that stuff. Uh, that's another subject, right?
0: If, if we're talking about things on Earth, not necessarily related to artificial intelligence, but things that mm-hmm. uh, don't involve going to space, uh, talk to me about the Earth's inner core. I, I saw one headline uh, that you had sent me that it might sure. be slowing or reversing. What's happening on that front? Well, some Chinese
1: scientists that are very credible and others around the world, geologists, true geologists, have stated that through measuring the the time that it takes these seismic waves to penetrate the earth, they can actually build like a model of this. And what some of the some of these scientists are saying is that the inner core of the earth, which in many cases are believed to be a liquid molten core, okay, temperatures down there are terribly hot. It's very very nasty place to go that it might be slowing down and even reversing. But let's not alarm people because apparently there's no you know, deleterious effects if something like that were to happen right now. It's not a polar magnetic shift. But what we've just discovered, this is very interesting, Frank, instead of having four layers of the Earth internal, we now have a fifth one. And when, why do we start from the top? There's the crust, the mantle, there's a thing called the inner core, and there's something, as we described before, this liquid core that they think had slowed down or reversed. But now we're finding out, this is amazing, by these seismic reflections that are coming out. I don't know how they do this, but this is what they say they do. They've discovered a 400-mile-wide core made of nickel iron in the center of the Earth still. So think about that. The pressures must be so amazing, but how does a liquid molten core not ignite one that's internal to that one, this is one of the great mysteries and one of the greatest uh, things that we study out there. It's just so incredible what's happening with a 400-mile-wide uh, core. But here's something interesting, too. If you want to know from where you are right now, the distance in miles, just to show you how the Earth is really not as big as we think, from New York City to the North Pole is 3,405 miles. From the where New York City is to the equator is only 2,813 miles. But to go to the South Pole, Frank, you're 9,031 miles from the South Pole. And for those that really want to know this, the Antipode, in other words, if you drilled straight through the Earth, where would you come through if you went straight down from New York City? You would go, I have the coordinates, I won't bore you with those, but you would pop off maybe 500 miles to the southeast of Perth, Australia. And the farthest city from New York is Perth, with a distance in kilometers of some 18,701 miles. Why am I telling you all this? Because the Earth's diameter at the equator is 7,927 miles wide, where pole to pole it's only 7,000, you know, to 7,900 miles. So the Earth is wider at the equator by 27 miles, and I promise I won't send you my last picture <laughs> after the workout, but I'm a little oblate, as many people can be, around the
0: equator too. <laughs> <laughs> you, you and me both. Claude is in Baltimore <laughs> waiting patiently. Hello, Claude.
1: Hi, Doctor Sky. I, I hey, heard
0: George, I've heard you on Art Bell, George Nori, and oh we're yes, gonna, we're going to discuss some science fiction here. It, yes, sir. I've heard of a story. I don't know how true sure it is, but there's a Project Blue Beam that the government has. It's oh, yes. a bigger project, right?
1: Yes. And what it
0: does, they got holograms, and they can make Jesus appear. They can make thunder. They can make anything. They can make you talk to you or anything. And huh? and I know you, some people think I'm crazy when I tell you this, but they can make fake UFOs appear and, and like, shoot them down and everything. And they really ain't doing nothing.
1: Claude, you're absolutely right. There is such a theory out there. It's not me that proposed it, but I can tell you right now from our coast friends. And, again, a great show with great guests for the years. It, obviously, the loss of Art Bell is a big thing to those out there. It's a sad one. Oh, yeah, movie. I love Art Bell. But here we go with Project Bluebeam, in case people are not familiar, you're right. We could create with this whole, I don't know, a false flag operation to diminish religions in the world and try to send, you know, show us that alien spacecraft have arrived. And it would be a whole way to bring everybody together, but it would be kind of a contrived and organized effort in which all the information that that's coming through, it almost sounds like the balloon story in a way, Frank, right? we don't hear the truth on that, but... This is something even more bizarre, Claude, but, uh, people need to look it up. I mean, just for. Whatever your belief system is, it's Project Bluebeam. It's kind of an interesting concept. Uh, let's hope it's not real. 800
0: 9222 We're going to continue with your questions in just a moment. I have a number of questions as well. Talking with Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. You can check out the podcast, The Dr. Sky Experience, for more in-depth uh, discussion and analysis of what we're talking about, great interviews with terrific guests, and tips on what you can look for in the night sky as well. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moran
1: Magic Seems to whisper and hush And all the soft moonlight Seems to shine in your blush Can I just have one more moon dance with you?
0: The great Lord. Michael Booblay singing Moon Dance. Well, whether you like to dance uh, at the moon or just look at it, We're talking with the go-to guy on lunar exploration or anything that happens in the night sky, Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. Uh, You can also check out the Dr. Sky blog at ktar.com. We steal a ton of great content from there. Steve, uh, a couple of weeks ago, the whole world seemingly, at least the whole continent, was abuzz with discussion of the Green Comet, Comet ZTF. And uh, Mm -hmm. apparently... There are still images that we're seeing uh, from this green comet, including uh, some images courtesy of Artemis 1. What, uh, what can you tell us about this uh, comet ZTF, the so-called green comet?
1: Well, first of all, thank you for the people that are listening to your show. And, and this segment here is a bi weekly part of this radio show. Thank you. But the point is not to jump all over this. So many in the media got this wrong. Mm. As I mentioned before, I'm watching one of my local television stations one night doing some work, and they're saying, and I quote, Tonight's the night to see the Green Comet. Step outside from 1 a.m. and look up. Well, Frank, the comet was never that bright. City mm. dwellers would have almost an impossible you know, chance I, I to looked.
0: See it. I looked yeah. as soon as I got <laughs> off air. I looked uh, in depth, and I-, I didn't have any luck.
1: Well, Frank, the crowd that we had up in Sedona doing one of these resort programs had a nice group. And after that, I said to myself, you know what? I'm going to look for the comet. The sky was clear. No moon in the sky. It took me a while to find the little tiny puff and binoculars. Then I saw it in the telescope, and I said, you know what? I'm lucky to see this thing because it won't be back for 50,000 years. But unfortunately, some of the media just do this, I, you know, not 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 to keep harping on it. They do a disservice when it should be really a truth story. It's like you really need a telescope or binoculars. You need super dark skies. And that's not a service. that That's doing a disservice, I think, to so many people who then they might say, imagine, ah, this stuff's no good. I can't see anything. Why bother? When the truth is you really could, if you had the conditions, they have to be told how to do it. And I'm sure many people out there do follow this.
0: 800 848 Bob is in Yonkers. Hello, Bob.
1: Frank, Doctor Doctor Sky, how are you? Good morning, Bob. I'm doing well. Um, as you know, things are heating up between China and ourselves. Yes. If China, if China gets to the moon first, would they have an advantage over us militarily? Well, they would, but the truth is, and I don't think they would follow this, and not just to attack China on this. Any nation cannot claim the moon for themselves. But if you're going to do some nefarious things like set up, you know, anti spacecraft missile system, like an ICBM system on Earth, that would be horrible. But in the spirit of trying to study all the beauty of the science world, which is why I believe Artemis 3, when we go with, you know, real astronauts, hopefully in the next five, four to five years. But no, uh, that would be a horrible thing, in my opinion. But there's something that one of the admirals here, and I, and this, I don't want to get political here, but this is Naval Intelligence Admiral States that how blind most and naive most Americans are to the China threat. Mm. So says Rear Admiral Mike Studevan. He's the commander of the Office of Naval Intelligence. He's just saying people need to wake up to the reality of what's happening out there with no hate in my heart. It's just that, you know, trust but verify, as as President Reagan had said. It's not, you know, just words. But that's also very interesting, Bob. Uh, Let's hope that cooler heads prevail, but... Who knows what could happen up there? The space warfare, that's probably why they set up the Space Force to begin with, to keep our satellites protected from future space wars like Star Wars in low Earth
0: orbit. 800 There was a story that I saw on Space.com yesterday that the Hubble telescope – captured some dazzling photos uh, of stars in the Orion Nebula. Uh, I'm sure you've seen these photos. Aside from the the beauty of them, what's the significance of of these photos and these stars, and what's happening in the Orion Nebula in general? Well, Frank, let's start off
1: in a fun way. Everybody listening, their homework assignment, if we can give out a friendly homework assignment, get outside if you have dark skies. Look high up into the southern sky as the sun goes down, like even an hour after. Orion's an easy constellation to see, and just below the three belt stars is the sword. That's where the Orion Nebula is. But how about this? It's 1,344 light years away. So that means the light left in the year 679 A.D., it's a stellar nursery where stars are being born. And it's the closest of all these stellar nurseries that we can see in the sky one edge of that little nebula, if you're looking at it as the smudge, is allegedly anywhere from 12 to 20 light years across. So even if we could travel at light speed from one side of the Orion Nebula, you would take, it would take allegedly 12 to 20 years of light speed travel. But what we're seeing with these images from Hubble, I watch the, the, the nebula pretty regularly in a telescope. Here's the challenge. If you have a telescope, folks, and you're looking at the Orion Nebula, pay close attention to one of the brighter stars in it. It's a star group called the trapezium, and I've never in my life seen something more beautiful. It's like tiny little, four little tiny stars so close together in the telescope. It's like little diamonds set into a piece of jewelry like a brooch. They call it the trapezium, and it's what lights up and illuminates the nebula. And there's stars, Frank, that are being born. But the age, get a lot of this, if the sun is 4 billion years old, the Orion Nebula is allegedly only three million years old. That's incredible for such an object that's so beautiful and relatively far.
0: Now, Let me try and get in at least one more uh, call here. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Nancy is in New Jersey. Hello, Nancy. Oh, hi, Frank. How are you? I'm great. Thank um, you. Good morning, good. Nancy. And good morning, Dr. Steve. We have spoken
1: before about a number of subjects, and I have a question for you as sure. to alien alien civilizations here, living here on Earth. Okay. And um, you know, I'm I'm wondering, you know, we always hear about the Grays, mm-hmm. and there you know there's a lot of um, there's a lot of literature out there about about them. I don't know how much it is. True sure. documentation or not doc, true documentation, but we also hear about another race—a taller, um, a taller, more aggressive race than the grays. And I wonder if there are two civilizations living here on Earth, and if there are, do they coexist? Is that coexistence peaceful? And what their what are their agendas here? Well, Nancy, that's a lot to answer. I don't yeah. know. I mean, I've studied this for so long, but my best interaction was actually a friendship with Betty Hill. Of that famous encounter back in 1961 with her husband Barney, and the aliens that she, in her most well documented story, were like the little grays. Then there's also stories about reptilian type creatures, which is kind of horrific. If you look at the, um, what, M. Night Shaliman's movie Signs, that movie bothered me, Frank. I don't know. Sure, yeah. That <laughs> yeah, was very strange, especially at the ending. I won't uh, be a spoiler. But I don't know this. I mean, if there indeed are, many people believe that alien civilizations have been in coexisting here with humans for for so long. But that's one of the great subjects that we study and, and try to see if we can ever come up with answers. But, Nancy, not to be negative, we can't even get answers on balloons as <laughs> to what they are. So just think of how difficult it's going to be to us to even know. Why can't they just tell us that alien creatures and civilizations do exist and hopefully they come in peace.
0: Yeah, it, <laughs> that is for sure. <laughs> hey, um, there was a story I saw it in the New York Post a week or so ago. Yes. Peace of sun breaks off, stuns scientists. Uh, this was... Very, very baffling to me. They yes. claim that material actually broke off of the sun's surface and created a tornado-like swirl around its northern pole. What do we know about this, very quickly? Well, Frank,
1: I hate to jump on the hysteria side of this, but also, like we were talking about before, I think it's a little exaggerative. These are big plumes mm-hmm. of material called solar flares and CMEs. I'm not too sure where the north pole won. That would be very unusual But I think it's all in the context of what's happening with Solar Cycle 25. More energy coming out of the sun. Stay tuned because we ain't seen nothing yet with sunspots and solar flares.
0: Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. We'll talk to him again in two weeks. But if you can't wait two weeks, check out the Dr. Sky experience. Steve, it's always a treat. Thank you. Thank you so much. Until the next hour, keep reaching for the stars, but always keep your feet on the ground.